Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Bless God. Did anybody have anything during worship that you saw or wanted to share? The part in the song that says, I just want you. When I got to that point, I was saying, it's been a very long time I've just wanted him. Mm. We wanted so many other things along with him, but then it, it just refocused me on just wanting him. Amen. So, yeah. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. So while we were worshiping and stuff like that, I just saw this vision of just being in this old city and and there was just chaos and there was, you know, fears, worry, all this stuff and people were running and scared and stuff like that. But there's this big wall that was there in the city and stuff like that. And on the other side was peace, tranquility and all those things. And people were running and they couldn't get there and stuff like that. But there was, there was a figure there that was lifting people up and putting them over the wall. And, and as they were doing that, more destruction was getting closer and closer until it finally get to the point where it looked like, you know, no, just come. He goes, no, I've got this. Just go. And he flings, I guess, me over the wall and stuff. And I come down and it's green pastures and everything. And I'm just so sad because I don't know why he did that. And as soon as I turn around, there's the same man Hmm. again and stuff like that. He's like, I told you I got this. So I don't know. You know, it's, you know, with Memorial Day and everything like that as well, too. There's a lot of people that lay their lives down for us and stuff like that. And I know Yeshua did the same thing. And I just think it's just the imagery of just that as well, too. So I don't know. I thought I'd share that. Yeah. So it was the same person on both sides of the wall, you said? Yeah. 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 He's with you in the trouble, and he's the one who brings you through with you all the time. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? Oh, Philip. I just, I was thinking, um, I don't know if it's just for me, but I just wanted to share it in case for anybody else. There was something I was kind of just thinking about dealing with, and it was something like, I'm not good at something, right? And I felt like God was just saying, I'm with you, and I gave you a deposit, you know, my spirit's in you, and I give you a gift or whatever it is. And whether anybody's telling you, you're awesome, come on, let's go, <clears throat> he, he's telling you that. You're good at what you're doing. You may not be good, but you're, like, he's, he's telling you, come on, let's just draw it out. He's got deposits in you. That whether anybody tells you you're great at it, continue on. You may not be great at it, but he's got the deposit in you, and he's kind of waving you forward. Come on, let's go. You got it in you. Let's bring it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amen. All right, so this week, our portion in numbers is Beha Alota, okay? And it's when you will, uh, well, you can could be lift up, but uh, it starts out in our portion speaking about the lighting of the menorah. And we begin in Numbers 8, verses 1 through 4. 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand, as the Lord commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers it was hammered work, according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. All right, so... When we're, with what we've been reading in the book of Numbers, these verses don't really flow with the storyline. They kind of stand out a little bit. We just talked about all the gifts that the tribes brought for the dedication of the altar. And then we just have this short little segment about Aaron and his sons shall kindle the menorah uh, daily. And then we skip right from there and we go into more of the consecration of the Levites. So it's just kind of a, it's almost like a sidebar. But of course, the Lord had an intent for why he placed it in this, in this section. I may not know exactly why he placed it in this section, but there are some theories out there about, uh, you know, all the tribes except for the Levites had brought forth something for the temple. And so God was essentially saying to Aaron, you and your sons, you have a special way of dedication of the altar as well because you Light the light the candles within the holy place, um, and then there's also allusions to well, this is later on in time after the miracle of Hanukkah and the rededication of the temple. The sages looked and said, perhaps this is one of the consolations that Aaron was being given, that he would be a part of the rededication of the temple, he and his descendants. But the menorah, I wanted to start out talking about it because the menorah is known as the light of the world. Okay? Now, it's the menorah only burns within the temple, right? In the holy place where there's the showbread and the altar of incense. So, you know, the world doesn't really get to look upon the menorah, but within the on the temple in the temple there were windows, right? And the windows were set up such that light would go from the, would be amplified from inside to out. Normally, if you were to build a home, you're trying to bring light in, so you angle the windows in a certain way to where more light can filter in. But the temple was arranged the other way, where the light from the inside would shine to the outside. Okay. Now, with this this idea of the light of the world isn't only appro- only applied to the menorah, right? Throughout rabbinic literature, uh, there is. The light of the world also stands for the temple, Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. It can refer to the sages, to rabbis, um, the whole nation of Israel. Sometimes they speak of the light of the world being the redemption when light goes to all the world. The Torah itself, right? Because in the scriptures it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And then even uh, the light of the world refers to God himself as well. So there's many uses of the light of the world, but the menorah is one, and it's specifically a holy light that shines inside the temple to light up the activities there of the priests as they serve. Now, the light of the world, as we understand too, refers to the Messiah, right? And in John 8:12, Yeshua spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? And then 
Yeshua also uses the same phrase to speak about his disciples in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so when we think about this, we say, well, how can we be the light of the world? Right? I can understand God being the light of the world. I can see the symbolism of the menorah and the temple and the nation of Israel. And it's like, well... The nation of Israel is called to be a light unto the nations, right? So what is the light that shines through Israel and then through Yeshua's disciples? Well, it's the light of God that has come into us that then shines forth because what do we have to offer? Right? What, if there's, if it's supposed to be our own light that shines forward, we're not going to see much light. <laughs> now, as, as Philip mentioned before, you know, talking about how God is placed gifts within us. And even if we may not be good, he calls us forth and says, come on, right? Operate in the gift that I've given you. Operate in the talents that I've given you. But all those things come from God, right? Those abilities, they all come from the Lord. If we were to say, what is it that I bring to the table? Well, it's not much good. (laughs) But then if I make room for God to move within me, if I if I empty myself such that I can be filled by his spirit and by his word, which Yeshua has given us, then I can actually go forward and be a light to the world. Because now the light that's coming forth from me is not of my own, but it is the light of God shining through me, right? And this is the whole thing where Yeshua says that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the acts of righteousness, of loving kindness, the keeping of the commandments, right? And again, It's the Spirit and the Word operating in us that has been given to us. And then we accept it, we receive it, and become transformed by it. And in so doing, then become transformative agents in the world. Okay, so ultimately everything comes back to Him. And and Richard talked about how we, we, uh, we sang about all I want. Is the Lord. I just want to, I just want to come back to Him, right? And that's ultimately what we, that's, that's our, that's our biggest responsibility is to say, Lord, you're what I want and I'm coming back to you. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things that I could be out seeking. But ultimately, we seek first His righteousness, right? And then He sends us out and all the other things are taken care of, right? And within the menorah, we actually have a picture of abiding in Messiah. And, and I have an um, image here on the slides of a menorah. It's actually not just any menorah. This, um, this is the menorah that has been built that will be used in the third temple. Okay, so this is in Jerusalem. It is uh, encased in some super strong glass so that no one can actually come and steal it. But I wanted to show it here primarily from the aspect of the illustration of what a menorah looks like, right? We know that it's a seven-branched candlestick. Um, what you'll note here is that you have a center 
candle, which is the, the, sh- the shamash, okay? Which actually the word shamash, can, it can mean sun, but uh, it's often referred to as the servant, especially with regard to the menorah. Now from the shamash, you've got three branches on each side, um, all of them connected to the center and coming out. Now, Aaron and his sons were commanded to kindle this daily. It would burn from evening until morning. Okay, and then in the morning, the priest would come in and they would clean clean it all out. They would put new oil in, new wicks, which the wicks were actually the old robes of the priests. Okay? And what we read in the scriptures, what it says that the light shall shine towards the face of it. Okay? Well, what is the face? That became a question. Of, well, what does it mean, shine towards the face? And the most common understanding is that the wicks would be placed such that they would point towards the center candle. So the three on the right would point inward, the three on the left would point inward, such that the light always shined towards the center. Okay. Now, well, what is said is that this center candle would not burn out, like it would burn continually. Okay, the others, when they came in in the morning, you know, the, the burning would be done and they'd be ready to clean them out, but the center one would remain lit all the way until the evening when it was time to relight everything. So they would refill, freshen the wick, and then the process of lighting the menorah was to take the light from the center, the shamash, and light the others from right to left. So it's like an eternal flame that provides the light to all its branches. Okay, so we need to be thinking about Yeshua, who is the ultimate servant, the one on whom we are to keep our eyes fixed on, right? Our faces should be directed towards him with our light shining that he has given us through the oil, which is the spirit and the, and the flame, right? Okay, Your, his words are a flame. God's words are a flame. Right? So we have the Spirit and we have the Word, all of it reflected back to the center, all the branches connected and abiding in the one shamash center candle. Okay? So it's pretty cool. Sforno notes that the right side represents the intellect, is intellectual ideas and the left side is applied, or thoughts that are applied to one's livelihood. And so his commentary on this was really that all aspects of your life should be still centered right back towards, well, the center and the source, right? All reflecting right back on the Torah, on, on God. Now, another thing that, that I see in this is that there are six branches attached to the center. Six is the number of man, right? So you have man who is attached to the center shamash candle, and when man is attached to that candle, you reach the number seven, which is completion. So it's when we abide in Messiah, when we attach ourselves to him, when we turn our face toward him, we're made complete, we're made whole. Amen. So so abiding in Yeshua, right? I seem to remember John saying, saying something about abiding in Yeshua in John 15 saying that we have to remain attached. 
John 15, starting in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We just have to stop right there. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Right? It's just like the light. We can't have our own light. Right? We have the light of God that then comes through us. And just as, you know, we can't do anything, well, Yeshua was the same way, right? He emptied himself, took on the form of man, and he came as a man fully dependent on God, led by the Spirit, and, and always listening to what God would say and doing only what God commanded him to do. Right? And then even when he went into villages to heal, what does the scripture say? It would say, the, the Spirit was present to heal or the Spirit wasn't present to heal. So in all that Yeshua did, He was fully dependent on, on God. Now, if anyone does not abide in Me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your, your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And how appropriate is that verse for this weekend, right? Laying down their life for his, for their, uh, for their friends. So, there's nothing that we can do apart from Yeshua. All that we have comes from God and really you know, when you consider the idea that God fills all the heaven and the earth, as is said in Jeremiah, that doesn't really leave a lot of room for our egos, does it? <laughs> the funny thing is, I I, uh, I look at the world today and I, don't, I, I see a lot of ego. I see a lot of self-centered uh, worldviews. A lot of it's all about me and everyone watch out for me as opposed to really a selflessness that we're called to, li- to walk in and to live in as believers, as children of God. And so again, we have to be countercultural, right? In so many ways and not fall into the trap of uh, exalting ourselves, uh, taking offense, and moving in those, in those types of areas. So we have to walk in humility. And there's a Jewish uh, concept for this. It's called bitul hayesh, okay, which essentially means the nullification of the self. Okay? It is, it, it involves effort. It's an, it's an effort to put down the ego and to walk in a recognition of who God is, his greatness, and of 
our dependence upon him such that we aren't governed by pride, arrogance, um, and, and selfish type of ambition. There's a uh, messianic pioneer or a Hebrew Christian pioneer back in the uh, ni- late 19th and early 20th century named Paul, Paul Philip Levertoff. And he said, the aim of creation is betul hayesh, and that is ceasing from being ceasing from being something apart from God. That's easier said than done, right? <laughs> he said the, the aim of creation, right, is to, to cease from being something apart from God, to be a vessel that is totally poured out and emptied and made a place that is ready for God's presence to come and dwell. All right, so within our portion this week, we're not going to go into this very much, but if we were, you would find quite a bit of complaining. As the children of Israel set out from Mount Sinai, headed towards the Promised Land, uh, the people took complaints, and there were multiple levels and iterations of complaints that were taking place. And the Didache, all right, which was an early writing, to uh, Gentile believers in Yeshua, they warned that grumbling and complaining is a symptom of a haughty spirit. Right? It's a symptom of really a selfishness that's built up within us. I don't know. I guess I have some selfishness and stuff built up in me. Right? <laughs> Still working on this whole Betul Hayesh thing, okay? So y'all work with me and y'all, y'all do it too. <laughs> but, um, but on the opposite side of, of really, of complaining and, crit- and criticisms is humility. Okay. And humility has multiple definitions. We're going to kind of look at some of those. But the opposite was greatly demonstrated through Moses, who was the most humble man in all the earth. And if you don't believe me, take his word for it. He said so. And, uh, <laughs> we always get a good laugh about, about that, you know, about how the most humble man in all the earth wrote in the book that he was the most humble man in all the earth. And so then he takes, you know, put yourself in this picture, right? Moses comes to you with the Bible and he says, here's the Bible, read it. And you, you read it and you come along and he says, Moses, the most humble man in all the earth. Your eyebrows might raise a little bit. You're like, that's interesting. And you say, Moses, hang on, I got a question about this one. Why does this say this? He says, are you going to question the word of God? <laughs> oh, there's no getting around it. He was just the most humble man in all the earth. <laughs> he can't argue with that. Um, so, so he had achieved complete humility. He had become an empty vessel where nothing, uh, nothing apart from God was in him. You know, he was completely open and looking for communion with God, meeting with him daily, right? And so we're looking for that kind of encounter to be filled with the Spirit, to hear from the Lord and earlier Ben mentioned, you know, that as we're thinking about Memorial Day and the sacrifice given, of course, we have Yeshua, who is the perfect example of one who gave his life so willingly for, for a higher purpose, right? And, and Yeshua emptied himself completely. He was the perfect example of, of what Betul Hayesh is to look like. And so, so he says, come follow me, be like me. And that's where we get to 
go on that uh, on that journey together and and have the Lord say, "Come on, I know you're failing, but keep coming. I've given you what you need, and I'm here with you. I'll get you over that wall, right?" Um. Okay, so here we are. Let's go and let's talk about the definition of humility, right? So if you were to look it up, uh, you'd see that some of the definitions are not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive, which is interesting. The, the whole assertive thing, I don't know that that really fits in there. Because was Moses uh, just meek and weak and kind of laid back when uh, when troubles came? Yeah, yeah, the, the whole, the, the let my people go was a little impressive, right? Well, even back up, right, to where when he was uh, a servant, or not a servant, but he was a prince in Pharaoh's house, and he sees an Egyptian uh, beating a Hebrew slave. What does he do? He steps in, right? And then he's, he's out uh, going towards Midian, and he's at the well, and he sees uh, Jethro's daughters, being assaulted by these these uh, shepherds. And what does he do? He takes them on, right? I think he was pretty assertive. And then, yeah, then, then willing to go as the as Lord had called him to do, to go to Pharaoh. So he was not one who was weak and feeble, right? So humble and humility, it's not about weakness or feebleness or whether you're assertive or not. I didn't really mean to go into that, but the certain just doesn't really fit. What's that? He was still, young. He was still young at the time. <laughs> Got a little dry there, right? But um, and then other definitions are like having a spirit of submission um, or ranking low in hierarchy or scale. Which I mean, those can be aspects, you know, of how humble can be used. But when we're talking about biblical humility, we're not talking about weakness. Uh, we're not talking about frailty. We're not talking about lowliness in position, right? Because, I mean, as children of God, does that fit as being lowly in position? It's like, no, that's actually a pretty lofty, wonderful thing. Um, and another thing is it mentioned here was like the quality of not being proud because you're aware of your bad qualities. That was, I didn't really like the way that was written either. But within that, I think the whole thing is a recognition of our own frailties of our own weaknesses of our own shortcomings and that is part of humility too um but within so essentially i'm reading that in in the aspect of saying that humility is multifaceted there's there's different components um about our recognition of ourself how we understand where we are in relation to god and then how we relate with one another but back to what Moses was doing whenever he would come into a situation where someone was being um, oppressed or downtrodden, then he would step in, right? Apart from being sent by God to step in, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't forced to step in with the Egyptian taskmaster or the shepherds who were coming against the women at the, or, you know, Jethro's daughters. But what he was is he was willing to step in and really put his life on the line for someone else. Okay. And he was willing and able to lay aside his own desire for the sake of another. And then it even goes forward to the uh, time after the golden calf when Moses 
is standing before the Lord, and the Lord says, I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over and make a great nation of you. And Moses says, no. No. Uh, I'm not going to stand aside. I would rather that you blot me out from your book than that you wipe them out. Right? And so when you think about the most humble man in all the earth, by no means was he weak or not assertive, but rather he had emptied himself of himself such that he could fully walk in God's will and call for his life to where he could say, no, God, I I know your heart. I know your faithfulness. I know your covenant faithfulness. And I'm going to stand and I'm going to intercede and I'm going to see you work in me to accomplish your promises and your purposes. So that's actually another aspect of what a humble person is, which we often don't think about it. At least I wouldn't have really thought of that without having heard uh, some teachings on that recently. Yeah. Um, now, in the scriptures, of course, we, we see that the, it says that Moses was the most humble man in all of the earth. Of course, that was before Yeshua came. And we know that Yeshua is like the former Redeemer, right? But the latter Redeemer, Yeshua, is even greater in every regard, even greater and more humble than Moses. In Philippians 2, we're going to read several verses from Philippians 2, uh, but we're going to start in verses 6 through 8. And so, actually, I'm just going to go ahead and, oh, there we go. Okay. So Yeshua, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, with that humbling himself, that wasn't meekness or weakness, right? When he was questioned, he said, you know, I could could call on many legions of angels to come right now. So, I mean, it wasn't an aspect of being weak or having been overcome. He had been fully emptied to do the will of God, right? A perfect example. Um, So now, you know, thinking on Yeshua and on Moses, I want to go to Numbers 12, 1 through 14, with the incident where Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. Okay, so Moses didn't hear his brother and sister speaking badly about him, but God did, right? And then it was made known to Moses that uh, that these things were going on. And what was Moses' response? You know, his first response was, Lord, heal her, please. Right? It wasn't, uh, <laughs> I'll teach you to talk bad about me. <laughs> Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that God speaks to me face to face? Right? No. He was like, God, please heal her. And God's like, well, she's going to stay outside the camp for a week, okay? But God answers, and he brings healing. And so, you know, that, that reminds me of how Yeshua responded, too. When he's on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? Now, how do you respond to offense? Is it the same? It's hard to. Right? It's hard to. Now, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, 7 through 8, he has a little something to say about conflicts within the community and how people should handle these things. And essentially what's happening is that people are having disputes, and they're going to the secular courts to have their disputes settled instead of having the leaders of the community make rulings for them according to the Torah, right, which is... Well, it's wrong, right? Plain and simple, God gave the Torah to them that would, and a process even written out here where elders would be appointed who would hear the cases. And communities had a uh, Beitin, a uh, house of judges, which was a, a set of three people who would make the rulings according to their understanding of the Torah to the best of their ability. And so Paul here says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already already a defeat for you. But he was rebuking them for not keeping it within the community. But he's like, but even, even if you were keeping it in the community and going to leaders who are going to judge according to Torah, it's still already a defeat for you for the fact that you have lawsuits with one another at all. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now, Paul's not saying be a doormat to all the world, let the world come and walk all over you. He's talking about within the community of believers who are to be unified, who are to be operating with one another in love, right? That, that we should be looking to overlook offense rather than looking to find offense or looking to find uh, justification or recompense. Right? Not that just, not, not that recompense isn't good because recompense is good, right? For the one who has done wrong to make right what was wrong. But when we've been wronged, 
there's there's two attitudes that that we can have. There's one of forgiveness and allowing the other to come and make things right, or there's going out and pressing our claim and saying you're going to make it right, right? And so it's like, well, what's the attitude in our heart? What's really what's really operating in us? And so Paul's saying, go go above. It's forgiveness and and making the peace, and so. Within that, there's, within these attitudes that would help, our ability to do that is to, to regard others highly. So let's go back to Philippians 2 in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Messiah Yeshua, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Yeshua every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? And what's, what stood out to me is Paul's calling us to consider each other's highly, not to be seeking the self or the ego, right? And to regard others well, right? Part of regarding others well and highly is giving the benefit of the doubt, right? Giving forgiveness, um, not being a doormat, of course, you know, I mean, because he says here, you look out for your interests and the in- interests of others. But, but great blessing comes to those who will humble themselves, right? And we have the, it gives the example of Yeshua, pretty high bar. But then in verse 9, it says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Yeshua, though he was in the form of God, humbled himself and took on flesh and was totally obedient to God, even to the point where he was willing to give up his life. And he actually gave up his life in joy, for the joy set before him, right? And as a result of emptying himself and going low, God highly exalted him, bestowing on him the name that is above every name, and that at his name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Now, we're not going to have the name that's above all names and, and have everyone bow to us, right? But we, when we humble ourselves and we come before the Lord and submit ourselves to him, then it's he who lifts up. It's he who raises up. It's he who then pours out blessings upon us, blessings upon us and on our community, right? Because when, as an individual, we make room for God, he works in us. When we as a community make room for God, he moves within the collective, right? And we know that the collective amplifies the power and the move of God, right? And Moses was faithful in all God's house. And, uh, yeah, there's within this, you know, back to the idea of Moses not being selfish or having it all about him. We had a, a perfect example 
um, in Numbers 11. I, I won't actually read this, but in Numbers 11, verses 24 through 29, the scripture talks about how Moses had cried out to God and said, I need help. These people that you've given me to carry, this is too much. And God says, okay, appoint 70 elders who are of good repute, and I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you, and I'm going to place it on them, and they will bear up with you. And so the 70 come, or actually 70 all don't come. 68 of the 70 come to the tent of meeting, and God pours out a spirit, and they prophesy. Two stayed back in the camp, and the spirit of the Lord came on them where they were, and they began to prophesy. And then Joshua, I think, I think the scripture says it was Joshua, came and said, Moses, these guys are prophesying in the camp. Arrest them. <laughs> and Moses' response was, was not that, hey, what are they doing? They're out of order. He was like, I would that all the children of Israel would prophesy. You know? There was nothing selfishly ambitious about what Moses had. What he had, he wanted everyone to come and partake in. Everyone to come and say, we can draw close to God and we can encounter him. We can have his spirit on us, within us, and declare God's word. So it's a pretty neat, I mean, these are just great examples of well, what are, what's our attitude really to be in this? Um, where do we gain our value? Now, last week we did, we did talk about um, the importance of the individual, right? And that everyone has unique callings and giftings and our contributions are important and they absolutely are. But even still, it's not about us. And, and that's, that's the key here is that ultimately it's about something greater than us. Uh, there's a, there's a quote that I really, really like from this movie that you may have heard of called Woodlawn. Woodlawn? It's called Woodlawn. I've, I've, I mention it like probably every three or four months. If you haven't watched it, I still recommend it. Okay. Anyway, but in this movie, this, uh, you know, this missionary type guy is talking to one of the, the athletes and he says, when you play for yourself, you can be great. But when you play for something greater than yourself, that's when something extraordinary can happen. Right. And, that, and that's how it is in the kingdom. Right. God's given us talents and gifts that we can move in and operate in such that his light would shine through us. And, and we can go in our own strength and we can do it for our glory. Doesn't mean he's going to take away the gift, right? And st- some good things can still come from, from those efforts, right? And so great things can come, but how much more when you play for something greater than you? That's when God can really move. When we've really made ourselves a vessel that is not about us, but really about him. It's, it's transformative and it's restorative to us and to the body. Um, okay, so I'm going to, uh, I was debating which, which thing I was going to talk about next in, in wrapping up. Um, and we, we have a wedding this weekend within the community, so we're excited about that. And, uh, and so why not, let's talk a little bit about marriage. Humility and marriage. Um, so if you want to know one of the biggest secrets to a happy marriage, 
It's about humility. I mean, it really comes to these things of emptying oneself of the ego, of the pride, and of the offense. Because, I mean, I know we have a lot of married people in here, and we know that those things come in to play. Especially when we're tired or whatever it may be, it's really, you know, offense and stuff like that can come up. It's like, well, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to feed that? Or are you going to say, you know what? It's not about me. Instead, I'm going to judge, uh, what, what is it, favorably. I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to fall back on what I know <clears throat> of one's love and of my love. And um, so in Ephesians 5, we, we have some verses here we'll, we'll, we'll take a quick look at. See, this is, when you start reading this passage, all the men start out, yeah! And then suddenly the men say, whoa. Okay, but... <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so, so let's read this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Messiah is the head of the ecclesia, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the ecclesia submits to Messiah, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Messiah loved the ecclesia and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the ecclesia to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Messiah does the ecclesia, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Messiah and the ecclesia. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, yeah, and the men end with a, huh? Kind of, but, but it's more like, uh huh, because it's like, whoa, I already see what my task is, right? But, this is, it's reciprocal. You know, there is this love and respect that is called for both parties to give to the other. And the man was placed over the woman, right? Has headship over the woman. But before a man starts to say, well, I call all the shots, Paul quickly reminds us, no, you're supposed to love the way that Yeshua loved. And how did he do it? The perfect servant who emptied himself and gave himself up. Yeah. Every once in a while I get some good feedback. Uh, <laughs> but, but this, this is the whole thing. It's a, it's a servant love. It's a servant leadership. It's not a, um, I'm in charge and here's where we're going. Here's what we're doing. Right. It's really a partnership. I remember, uh, many years ago, I would go to some conferences out of town. And I remember one time driving back, and I would always leave Heather and the kids, you know, because it's like, well, I'm, I'm going to go, and, you know, that's kind of the way it is. Uh, there needs to be. It's kind of what it was. But anyway, I remember hearing specifically from the Lord on one of those trips, don't ever go anywhere without your wife, okay? Now, I understood that not that she was supposed to come with me on all the trips, if that makes sense. It wasn't that I couldn't go to the store without my wife. It wasn't that I couldn't go to a conference without my wife. 
It was the in life, don't go anywhere without your wife. So here's the Lord showing you all kinds of things and saying, hey, here's the direction I have laid out for you. And you say, all right, Lord, I'm going. Uh, are you coming? Come on, we're going. No, that, that's not, that's not the call. The call is, okay, I'm giving you this direction. And now you're actually to lead your wife in that direction, not force her in that direction. There's a difference between leading and forcing. Okay. Because within forcing, there's a, well, it's, it's a, uh, most likely not an appreciative submission. <laughs> okay. But, but within the leading, there's a unity that comes. Okay. And so, for example, when I was uh, going to leave work, uh, many, many years ago now, it was nine years ago, I knew that's what the Lord wanted. And we were like, okay, you're going to leave work and we're just going to see where the Lord leads. And then the moment we verbalized it, and it became real. Then Heather's like, whoa, 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 we're, no, this, we're not doing this. You know, I'm pregnant with our third child. What is going on? You know, and, and so suddenly I was like, oh, but I'm really wanting to do this. You know, <laughs> this is where we're supposed to go. And so, uh, so we began to pray about it. And so I went on a fast and it's like, okay, I'm going to fast 10 days and we're going to see what the Lord says. And, Right away, God started to answer our prayers to start to show us what the answer was. And then on the eighth day, he gave further revelation of what needed to happen. And by the tenth day, we were so unified that we didn't even have to talk about it. We just were like, yeah, you're leaving your work. And I think that was critical in our journey, right? Because... We were then going together. It wasn't, I'm going somewhere and you're coming along. Right? It was, we're going together. And that's what, I mean, I don't want to say that's the model marriage, but I mean, that, that's, but that is, that's what I see as a servant leadership and how husbands are to love their wives. You may be the head, but you're to cherish and treasure your wife and you're to, encourage her. You're to seek unity. Now, I'm not saying that every situation is going to look the same, right? There may be times that a decision has to be made that is not uh, totally unified, right? But the efforts of caring and compassion and seeking unity and, and walking together in love is going to, well, it's going to bless your marriage. It's going to bless the mission and the calling that God has sent you on, right? And this is where if a husband is truly loving his wife and laying himself down for her, in those decisions, the wife will be more readily able to submit and support and respect and walk with. Right? And wanting to. Yeah. It, and so all these things, they matter. How we give and how we pour into our wives is going to affect how our wife gives and pours into us. And then the way they pour into us is going to again go back. So it's, it's a building up. It's a reinforcing action, but it begins from a place of humility and not of striving for myself, but of striving for my own flesh and blood, right? And loving my, my body, right? 
as I love, you know, loving my wife as I love myself. It's a sacrificial love. And on both parts, it's a sacrificial love. Um, but I think that's a, I mean, ultimately, I think that's a key to, uh, to a happy marriage. And then from that place, really, if you, if you want to throw this back into the scriptures and think about how God will take that which has been laid down, that which has been offered up, and then he will lift it up, right? Same thing in marriages. God will take that and lift it up and bless. So, um, does anybody have anything that you wanted to share or anything to say? Other than, other than Rachel really liked the, uh, the last part of the message. <laughs> Amen. Yes. Uh, Betul Hayesh, B-I-T-U-L, and then the second word is H-A-Y-E-S-H. But yes, so within, you know, just within it all, this this weekend, so much in the scripture, I mean, how many of the children of Israel's problems could have been solved had they laid down their own wants and didn't take to complaining, right? What could have happened? Like, if you, if we look at the timeline, right, the scripture said that it was on the 21st day of the second month of the second year that they set out from Sinai, headed toward the promised land. In Deuteronomy 1-2, the scripture says that it's an 11-day journey from Sinai to the promised land, okay? But it took them much longer to get there. Right? Because all of their complaining and problems along the way caused delay. It caused the, the, the mission, the calling that they had, God's destiny for them to be held out longer. Now, if they, you know, they left on the 21st day, and if it's 11 day, an 11 day journey, do you know what day they would have arrived at the promised land? It would have been the first day of the third month. The first of Sivan. The first of Sivan is the day that they arrived at Sinai. Okay? So they arrived at Sinai after coming out of Egypt on the first day of the third month. And then five days later, they received the Torah and entered into covenant with God. So here God says, I'm, you're leaving Sinai and you're headed to, to a new place of receiving and of inheritance. And you're going to arrive on the first day of the third month. One year from the time that you arrived at Sinai, and then you're going to go in and take the promised land. But it wasn't to happen that way. Instead, there was a delay. And of course, we know that there were there was more delay than just getting to, uh, to the promised land. There was then also the additional 38 years. But, you know, the, the aspect of trusting in God, having faith in Him, moving forward in that allows Him to work fully within us such that we do reflect his light in all the world. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the kindness that you've shown us. Thank you for the perfect example that you have given us in your son, Yeshua, of one who would lay himself down, who would nullify the ego such that your purposes might come forth in his life and such that the light of the world could come manifest in our presence 
and bring us salvation and then pour out upon us his spirit and his word such that we too might go and be agents of restoration and light in this world. I pray that you would strengthen us, Lord, renew our minds and transform us by your word and spirit. We thank you and give you praise in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.